I do have a bit of good news. It's only 170 days till Christmas, and so uh, that's good news for you. Be preparing for that. Uh, I felt like last week when we talked about the bad news, I, I just wanted to start with some really good news. 170 days, can't wait, looking forward to that. Two of my favorite words, cold front, looking forward to that coming. So uh, so maybe that'll come with Christmas also. Uh, we've been studying for the past five weeks just different aspects of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We began with Zach preached on the good news on First Corinthians 15, and about how the gospel really is uh, supposed to infiltrate every bit of our life. It's not just something that we respond to when we're seven or eight or at some point later in life, but instead it is something that um, we center our lives around, and so therefore it, it's a part of every part of our, our life. helps us make all our decisions in life. It's what keeps us on that straight and narrow path. It's, uh, it's really the gospel begins, even like in Proverbs chapter 3, when we're trusting in the Lord with, all, with our entire heart, trusting that He's going to guide us in our footsteps, trusting that in everything that we do that he's the one that's bringing, are going, going to get all the glory and the honor for that. So that's why the good news is, is so good because it's a, good, it's a news that never ends. Like we're anticipating 170 days from now is Christmas, but with the good news it's Christmas every day. You see where I went with that? And then uh, we talked about the, the doctrine of adoption, of what, what the gospel is doing for us. And that the God of justice, the just judge, doesn't just end with judging us, judging our sins, but he also adopts us into his family, where we become sons and daughters. And if he loves us with this kind of love as a father, we become his children, and so we are, First John tells us. So we have this doctrine of adoption that we get to live by daily, trusting in, in our faith that Christ has adopted us into God's family through the sacrifice that he made. And then Caden preached so wonderfully just uh, as, as people who have been changed by uh, what Christ has done in us and changed by the good news and that the gospel is working in every bit of our life. We become these mercy vessels that we can love our neighbor and that, that we can extend that love not just to our literal neighbor, neighbor but also to those who are unlovable, to those who no one else will love, to go to the places that no one else will go, uh, do the things that no one else wants to do because, because we've been adopted, because we've been saved, because we have this good news of Jesus, because we are these mercy vessels, because God has shown us in his rich richness of mercy, he has shown us his mercy, and so we also extend that to others. Just as Christ, Caden, preached this to us, but just as Christ loved us as that unlovable neighbor and extended mercy to us and compassion, so we go also and go show that to the rest of the world. And then I got the privilege of preaching about the bad news, the bad news of the gospel, and that we are sinners, and we are deserving, and we are deserving of God's wrath. And yet... God in his mercy and his love extends to us that someone else can die in our place, that we don't have to die in sin. We don't have to receive the wrath of God upon ourselves, but instead we can trust in that Christ took that wrath upon himself, that the cross was necessary, that there needed to be payment for sin, and Christ took that payment, uh, though it seems like a harsh punishment for for our sins, he still took that payment and died for us. And so, so even in the bad news, there's there's some good news. And I think that we have to begin to really get to a point where we're trusting in trusting in the totality of the gospel, not just parts of it. Not just like the uh, the insurance part that Christ has saved us from our sin, and so we have insurance to go to heaven. And so, at some point, when I die, for, when I leave this earth, I'll get to see Christ and say, "Man, I'm so thankful that when I was seven or eight, 
or 12 or 16 or when I was young, I trusted in Christ as my Savior. But instead, we're trusting in the, the whole of the gospel. We're trusting in the totality of the gospel. Like we're trusting in the good news, but also maybe a, a little less uh, we think about, but we're also trusting in the bad news that really do, sin really does separate us from God. That sin really is deserving of death, so Romans 1 says. And we're going to trust in that as well. So we want to start today just talking about our firm foundation in Jesus. And I know it's something that I'm looking around, and I know that many of you have been in church for a really long time, and I'm not making fun of your age with that, so don't take that as an insult. I'm just looking at you saying, I know that many of you have been in church for a long time, and you know uh, the story, the parable that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7 about um, someone who builds their house upon shifting sand, and when the storm comes and blows, that house falls. Because, why? Because they didn't have a good foundation. And so we have to, in return, we have to say, okay, we, we need a better foundation a solid foundation, a solid rock. And we see Christ being that solid rock, that solid foundation. And so we build our life, we build our life upon, upon Him, trusting in Him. And we see that, I think that we see that as a one-time moment. We see that as a, I trusted Christ this one time, and so what do I do with the, with the rest of my life? So, so what we need to see is that we're, we're going to live in that house that we're building upon the rock that it's gospel-centered, Christ-centered, that we're trusting in Him with every bit of our life, that we're living in that, that we're alive in Christ, in the house that's being built upon our Savior, Jesus, and that every bit of our life is based upon our faith and our trust in Him and Him alone. So faith is one of the fundamental features and basic elements of Christianity. You know this, right? Because it links us to God and it establishes a relationship between us and God. Faith is, a, is our confidence in and our commitment to God and Jesus. It is the essential response to what God has revealed to us. So He's revealed to us that sin separates us. He has revealed to us that Christ brings us to him or reconciles us to him. And because of that, uh, we put our faith and our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Romans chapter 4 is this faith chapter. I know you're thinking, I know you're thinking Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. Uh, but really, Romans chapter 4 pours out for us what it means to have faith in Jesus. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We know this. It's the conviction of things not seen, that we're putting our, our trust and our faith in something that we cannot see. Uh, it's, it's, uh, Hebrews 11 also tells us that without faith, it's impossible. If you don't have faith, it's impossible for us to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So they put, we are putting our faith and our confidence in Christ and Christ alone. Elliot Clark says that the Christian hope is that God's purposes are so unassailable that a great thunderstorm of events cannot drive them off course. Even when we're wave-tossed and lost at sea, Jesus remains the captain of the ship and the commander of the storm. I think that's a great way to say it, that we're putting our trust in the one who owns the ship, the one who's driving the ship, the one who can control every storm. We went to a wedding last night on the way home. Uh, we drove through a terrible storm. And to think as lightning is striking all around, as the rain and the wind is pounding around us, who, who controls all that? 
Where am I putting my faith? Am I putting my faith in Mother Nature? Or do I truly believe that God is in control of all of that? And so my faith should grow when the storms are around me. Let me say that again. Our faith in Christ should grow when storms are all around us. When we're on the ship and it's rocking because of the thunderstorm, we don't just fear the thunderstorm, but instead our fear begins to be rightly placed in the one who controls the thunderstorm. And this is why Matthew chapter 17 tells us, uh, because of our, sorry, this is why Matthew chapter 11 tells us that we should put our fear, rightly place our fear in the Lord and the Lord alone, because he's the one that controls everything. So Romans chapter 4 verse 1 says this, what then, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But he can't boast about those things before the Lord or before God. So what, what then shall we say about what is gained by Abraham according to the, to the works, according to his life on earth? So Paul is trying to get our minds through the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, trying to get our minds set upon the faith that Abraham had. What does he have his faith set in or set upon? Who is he trusting in? What is he trusting upon? Is he trusting upon his own works? And if he did, he could boast about that, and many would, many would clap and applaud him for the, for the many things that he did. But he has to put his faith upon God. He has, to put his, he has to be putting his faith upon Jesus or upon God instead of his own works because he can't boast about his earthly works before the Father because it doesn't amount to anything. Does that make sense? Like when we say, hey, we're, we're boasting in the things that we've accomplished or the things that we've done, or look at how good I am, when we bring that before the Father, he says, that amounts to nothing compared to what I have done. Have you spoke the earth into existence? No, but I did potty train a four-year-old. <laughs> and God applauds and says, well, that's great among your peers maybe, or maybe four is not even, I shouldn't even be bragging about that. Uh, but among your peers, maybe I should say, I body trained a six-month-old. Oh, okay, now you can applaud. But among, but you bring that before the Lord, and there's not really anything to applaud over. Mandy's making fun of me now, and I don't like it. Verse 3 says, For what does Scripture say? Abraham, this is important, so underline it or highlight it or circle it or write it down. Abraham believed God. Simply stated, his faith was placed in God. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not because of something he's done, but simply because his faith in God, it was counted to him as righteousness. So, saint, sinner, this morning, how can you become righteous? You put your faith in God, not in your works, not in what you're doing or what you're not doing, but instead you put your trust and your faith in God. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Verse 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So we're getting this statement here, we're getting this idea, this mentality, that what what Abraham is doing as our forefather, as someone that we can follow his example, he's completely putting his faith in God. That's all he's putting his faith in. Not, a, not among his actions. I mean, think about him going to 
uh, following the directions of the Lord, the instructions of the Lord to go and sacrifice his son. He's not putting his faith in his own actions. Oh, maybe, maybe if I do things correctly, maybe if I hike the right trail up to the right mountain and have the right altar and the right rope and the right knife and do all these right things, then the Lord will look at me and say, you are righteous for following me obediently. No, instead, Abraham puts his faith completely in God, trusting in God the entire time, saying, I will be obedient to the Father because he is the Father. I will be obedient to God because he is God, putting his faith in God and God alone. And God will do what he's going to do. And I'm going to trust that he is sovereign, that he knows all things. And I'm going to trust in God and God alone. So when we have those questions, when we say often, Mandy and I have said it too many times the past three and a half years that we've been here, three years that we've been here, the statement, the three little words, or four little words, however you want to break apart the English there. When we say, I don't know, we can return with that. Thanks be to God, I don't know. I'm going to put my faith and trust in God because He does. And so I'm putting my faith in Him and Him alone. When I misplace my trust and I trust myself or what I do know, that I'm not being obedient to Christ. I'm putting my faith in myself. And what do I deserve if I put my faith in myself? I deserve the bad news. I deserve unrighteousness. I deserve God's wrath. Well, I'm putting my faith and trust in God and God alone. I'm not deserving of it, but in His grace He gives to me through His Son, His Son's righteousness. Paul continues on. He talks about Abraham's outward expression or outward uh, expression of his faith in God. He talks about uh, what he was doing and all these things. And we get to verse 13 and it says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Church people, Southern Baptist people, good people, people of different denominations, we've been taught religiously to do the right things. We've been taught how to do the right things. I remember one time um, on a family vacation, and we went to the church that my granddad was uh, interim bivocational pastor at, and, uh, a, a little, uh, it's called First Christian Church of Comanche, Texas. And uh, we showed up, Randy and I and a couple of kids and uh, my sister and cousins, and we're all there. And they weren't anticipating this many people being there. And so uh, they take uh, Lord's Supper at communion every Sunday. And they didn't have enough bread. They didn't have enough juice, and so they had to scramble. And so somebody went down to the local KFC. It wasn't KFC. I think it was Golden Chick, and bought some biscuits. And we had biscuits there at the uh, Lord's Supper. And if you know anything about uh, the particulars of rituals, the particulars of Lord's Supper and communion, you know that, uh, that it shouldn't be leavened bread. But those honey biscuits show was good. <laughs> But there were several folks, including my grandmother, who were really offended that we used biscuits. Granny, you're missing the point. It's not about remembering the leavened, the leaven or the unleavened bread. It's about remembering the bread of life and what he's done for us. It's not trusting in or the right ingredients in the biscuits, but instead trusting in the right ingredients in our Savior that what he has done really did happen and has paid everything that needs to be paid and the work is completed. At the same time, that same service, uh, it was time to take up the, uh, or the, the Lord's Supper or communion and the offering at the same time. 
And one of the gentlemen said, Brother James, which is my, my granddad's name, Brother James, uh, would it be okay? I think it would just be so special if Matt, that's me, and my dad's name is Rex, if Matt and Rex were the ones to serve today, to serve the Lord's Supper and you know, take up the offering. And so at that time, my granddaddy said, sure, why not? You know, and so I stand up, and I, my dad's sitting next to me, and he stands up too. And we're walking up, and he says, do we know what we're doing? And I said, no, just go with it. Like we've been a part of this before. Like we've seen it happen. Surely it can't, it can't, be, that, it can't be that hard. But we've been taught. What if we mess up? I mean, what, 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 if we, what if we pass out the juice first? What if, we don't, what if we don't pass out the bread correctly? What if we pass out? Well, we don't trust in ourselves. We put our trust in our Savior Jesus and what he's done and what he's going to do. For the promise to Abraham, verse 13 says again, and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherence of the law... Who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. We can't measure up even to Abraham. You won't be able to follow the instructions as closely as even Abraham did. And we surely won't be able to follow it as closely, as perfectly, as Christ did. And so if we're using the law as our measurement for our righteousness, then we are failures, and we are deserving of last week's sermon, the bad news. But thanks be to God that Christ in his perfection followed through completely what needed to be followed through perfectly, and we put our faith and our trust in him and him alone. Uh, verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That simple statement right there should be, should be printed somewhere that you're reading it every day. That we're putting our trust, we're putting our trust into the, into the God who called things into existence. He is not incapable of doing anything. He can do everything. When you feel depressed, anxious, lonely, weary, He fills all those needs. When you feel blessed, He still can fill your needs. He is the Creator God who speaks things into existence. And we are, we are to put our trust completely in Him and Him alone. That's why it's okay to say, I don't know, but I do know who does, and I will put my trust in Him. And even if He doesn't reveal to me how things will go from here, I'm still putting my trust in Him and Him alone. Verse 18, in hope he believed, this is talking about Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. He continued to trust in the promise that God gave. He continued to trust and have faith in God. Though many would say, hey, stop having that hope, he continued to have hope. He continued with it. He did not stop. Verse 19 says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. He started looking at his own self. He said, Man, look who I am. 
Look at my worth. Look at my, uh, look at my aging. Look at me. Like I, he didn't do that. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, uh, in, in, oh, sorry, uh, in verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. See, this is what happens when we walk in faith. We begin to look around at things around us. We begin to look at our circumstances. We begin to look inwardly and look at self. And we begin trusting in things of this world. Oftentimes, many times, fleeting things. And here, Paul's telling us that the example of Abraham is that he didn't trust in that. Though many should look at him and say, you're a hundred years old. I know God has promised these things, but can he really keep that promise? Will you really have offspring? Will it even work? Will these things, will these things that God said, will they really come to be? Will the promises that God has made to you, will he keep those promises? And I think even in our world today, even in our walk of faith today, we wonder that. Maybe we're not, maybe we're not, um, bold enough or courageous enough to say that out loud to someone else, but I think we still walk in that. Is the Lord going to keep his promises? I mean, simple things like when he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Will he really keep those promises? When he says that perfect love casts out fear, but I'm yet I'm fearful always, will he really keep those promises? Even the promise of Psalm 51 that I've been praying for our church almost daily, will he restore to us the joy of salvation? Will he keep those promises that we will see? What, what about uh, first, first Corinthians at the end in 15 when we're talking about uh, the, the feeling of laboring in vain? Should we continue on when he says, no, don't, you're not laboring in vain. You're doing these things for me. Don't give up, Galatians tells us. For in due time, Galatians 6, 9, you will see a harvest. Are we going to trust in those promises? Are we going to? Or are we going to look inwardly and begin trusting in ourselves? So I think three things happen here in our walk with faith. Three things where we place our faith, a misplaced faith, and then a right-placed faith is what I want to talk about. And then we'll end together. The first is fear, a misplaced fear. We're talking about faith as a foundation of our life. Instead of faith being the foundation, oftentimes fear becomes the foundation. Fear of man, what can they do to me? What will they do to me? And so because I fear men or fear women, I choose to live my life this way. I mean, that's even including fear of like losing friendships. I heard one author say, uh, we want friends so bad, but when it comes to speaking the truth or sharing even our own faith, we're so fearful of losing the friendship that we stay friends with, with folks who, who lead us away from Christ because we have a, a misplaced fear. A fear of a loss of money. We look at our bank statements or our retirement accounts or our tax appraisal or whatever, and we fear those things. And I'm having a hard time. I'm going to grab some water real quick. My mouth is real dry. I'm sorry. We stayed out late partying at a wedding last night. I was going to make a joke about Mary Poe because I told her I would try and keep her awake, but she already left. So, <laughs> uh, Loss of life is another fear that we have, and so we, we base our life completely around you know, making uh, decisions on, I don't want to lose my life, and so, so I have a misplaced fear. So we want to rightly place our fear 
We want to have foundation of faith rightly placed in our fear. This is where Matthew 10.28 comes in. That we do not fear those who, kill, who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, we fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So we place our fear, like a, a right foundation of fear, is fear and reverence in God and God alone. This is where Abraham rightly places his faith. Rightly places his fear. Think about this. This is a really hard couple of verses. This is from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Uh, this is God speaking to Isaiah about the people around him. And he says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor dread what they dread. And then verse 13 says this. This is Isaiah eight thirteen. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy... And then here's the craziest statement. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread or your or what you're trembling about. So a right foundation, a foundation of faith, you have to rightly place your fear. And the Bible over and over again says, don't fear men or things of this world or loss in this world, but instead rightly place your fear in God reverence, respect, trembling before him, that you have a fear of him, a dread of him, because you know the bad news. And so with that, we're allowing that foundation to orchestrate or instruct our life so that we're walking in fear of the Lord and not fear of things of this world. We're not letting people become big and God become small, but instead we're allowing God to be the big God that he is and people to be the small things that they are. The same with money, the same with life, those those types of things. So for our foundation of faith, we have to have a right we have to have a rightly placed fear. And then we also have to understand our worth or our or our identity. When we have a misplaced worth, our foundation is shifting sand. When we think that our worth is found in our character and our good moral and the awards that we win, then we have a, we're building our life upon shifting sand. When we put our worth in our image, we could say at some point, oh, I'm a hundred and so my image isn't the same way anymore. And so where's my worth? And if we don't have a rightly placed worth, then our foundation is shaky. And because of that, we're not living in faith and obedience to Christ and Christ alone. I mean, this is for me. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just share this to you. If my worth is based upon my likes, the laughs that I receive, and the lines at my party, if my worth is all placed in those things, when I don't get likes or laughs, or when nobody shows up to my party, then I cry. And I wonder why life is the way it is. And then I hear God yelling at me, whistling to me, saying, because you put your faith in you and not in me. When my worth is found in my comparison to others, and I say, well, at least I'm not like them, it's a misplaced worth. And with that, my foundation is not solid rock, but instead it's a shifting sand. And so we have to rightly place our worth. This is where Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, students that went to Super Summer 
I have been reading through this, but Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. A rightly placed worth is an understanding of who we are. That's your homework this week. Read, read through that. But an understanding of who we are, what God has done for us, and placing our identity and our worth in Him and recognizing what He sees in us, and then us returning that saying, God, you've revealed who you are to us, and so I want to place my trust and you and you alone. And the last thing, so fear, worth. We have to have a, a rightly placed fear, a rightly placed worth, and then works. When we misplace works, our life becomes about see what I'm see what I'm doing. We become those religious folks. See that I've made the Lord's Supper bread correctly. See that I passed out the Lord's Supper appropriately. See that I prayed the right things. See that I wore the right clothes. See that I came on the right day. See that I said the right things, or whatever the case may be. When we have a misplaced works, when we misplace our works, and we let those things be our foundation, we can only say that it's going to be shifting sand. It's not going to stand up when the thunderstorm comes. Or maybe it's the opposite of that. It's see what I'm not doing. See how I'm not doing these things. See how I'm not saying these things. See how I'm not acting this way. And we place our faith in those things, and that's our foundation. When the storms of life and thunderstorms come, and the wind and the rain and all those things happen, those things will blow away, and we'll stand there saying, Lord, but I didn't do all those things. And the Lord may agree with you and say, You're right. You didn't do all those things. But the thing that you didn't do the most of was put your trust in my son. So place your trust in my son, my son alone. And I think the last misplaced word, word basically is, is simply said is, see how awesome I am. I mean, I think that we think that. I, I know that you maybe you deal a little bit with looking in the mirror saying, I'm not that awesome. But most of us, because Jesus said deny self, most of us struggle with denying self. Most of us think that we are awesome. And so a misplaced work is saying, see how awesome I am. See how good of a teacher I am. See how good of a preacher I am. See how good of a deacon I am. See how good of a whatever I am. See how awesome I am. And the opposite of that, a rightly placed work basically says, see the awesome I am. See the awesome I am. A rightly placed foundation of work is completely based upon what Christ has done. Trusting in Him. I'm terrible. Yet look at Christ, what He has done. And in my terribleness, He came to save me. And so I'm putting my trust in Him, in Him completely. I'm seeing the completed work of Christ. I'm seeing Jesus. So we have to have those foundations. A right fear, a right self-worth, a rightly placed worth, and a rightly placed work. It's not about my work. It's not about... My worth, it's not about my fear, but instead it's about who God is, fearing Him. It's about him, seeing our worth in Him, what He's done for us, our righteousness in Him. It's about seeing our, His completed work, trusting in Him and Him alone. Let's finish here, Romans 4, uh, verses 20 24. I think because Moses had a foundation of faith that was firmly placed in God, these things were able to happen. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. The winds came, the storms came, the rain, all these things came, 
And yet no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But instead, the opposite happened. Not a, not a wavering, but instead, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. The storms of life should grow you in, in strength in your faith of God. But he, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is what we're putting our trust in daily. I don't think Paul wrote this to say, think about this one time and then come back to it next year. I think he's writing this to the church in Rome saying, think about this daily. Put your foundation, put your faith in this foundation, the solid rock that's not ever going to move. It's never going to change. It's not going to blow you off course because you're trusting in what Christ has done in him and him alone. I want to end with a simple illustration this morning. I like these simple illustrations, and uh, I hope that this helps you, okay? And this one's a big one, all right? This is, this is going to be awesome. Okay, just get ready for this. This right here, oh, look at this. How awesome is this? Come on, Brad. All right, okay. This right here, I'll just read it because I know it's hard to read. This says, District 13A Champions 1999. All right? This is a baseball glove, if you can't tell. All right? If it wasn't for me, can I just tell you right now? If it wasn't for me, this trophy right here would be in the trash. It would have been thrown away. But because of me, because of me, this trophy's right here. Let me just tell you about this trophy. So I played on this baseball team, put a lot of uh, hard work, a lot of fear of our coach, a lot of worth into uh, to winning this trophy, and we did. We won it back in 1999. seems like so such a short time ago. Put a lot of work, put a lot of work into this. A lot of batting, a lot of hitting, a lot of fielding. A lot of long trips to Sonora and Kermit and Crane and uh, Midland Greenwood. Oh, put a lot of travel. Listen to our coach, Brandon. We got to call him Brandon. And they yell at us for calling Brandon. Put a lot of fear in him. Had a lot of worth built up in this. And after we won, we're in the papers, you know what I'm saying? Because that's how small towns do. A lot of worth was in that. And then about seven years ago, my mom called and said, hey, they're making room in the trophy case and they're throwing all those trophies away. You want it? Of course I want it. I mean, I want it back in 1999 and now I want it. I want this trophy really, really bad. But what does this tell us about trophies in life and accomplishments and the hard work? And They can just be thrown away. Just be thrown away. They had to make room for new accomplishments. More recent achievements took over this huge task. This old trophy, though I don't think it's that old, wasn't worth anything anymore. Basically, the fear that we had as players for our coach, the worth that was given to us when we won, 
And all the hard work that was putting into winning this trophy all became garbage. Why? Because it's fleeting. Just yesterday, Roxy was asking Mandy, why are you going through the trash, Mama? Which was an awesome sentence. And Mandy said, huh? And she said, why are you going through the trash, Mama? I'm going through the trash to get a trophy. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Brad, you did the same thing, right? And I just wonder for a second here, how many of us, how many of us are digging and digging we're digging earthly treasures out of the trash and making foundations out of them. How many of us are taking fleeting things from the world and making them or trying to make them our eternal foundations? Can I just say this? Stop looking in the trash for foundations. Stop looking through bank statements and political parties and tax appraisals and social media likes and report cards. Stop looking in the trash for foundations. Start or continue or be refreshed. Start having your foundation in Jesus and Jesus alone. Your fear in Him. Your worth in Him. Your work all resting on Him. Can I tell you this? They tried to throw Him away. They tried to bury Him even. And yet nothing could keep Him there. And that is why we have a firm foundation in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that even in the accomplishments that we think that we're doing, you convict us of those things and teach us so quickly how incredible you and you alone are. God, thank you that we can trust in you, that we can put our fear in you, that we can put our worth in you. That we can see your work and know that it's enough and trust in you and you alone. So God, help us this morning as I'm convicted just by reading your word. Help us not to dig through the trash looking for foundations, but instead help us to see Jesus and trust in him in every part of our life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.